Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. Hello, I'm Matt Bush, the news director for Blue Ridge Public Radio, and I produce Going Deep along with the Shoops. In this episode, we look at the 2019 NFL Draft, which runs from April 25th through the 27th. But we're going to do it our way, which means we're going to examine the language and the evaluation process of the draft, and how they both reveal some very ugly truths. So I think one thing that the NFL draft really represents to fans, and I think just fans of the sport, is hope. And I think that's one reason why it's become such an event. And it's a pretty uh, human feeling and a pretty natural feeling as a fan to feel every year that, well, maybe we're just one player away. Our team is just one player away from being good. And that's, I think, driven some of the popularity of this particular event. Would you agree? I would definitely agree that that's some of what has driven the popularity. I can tell you that there were times when I was watching the draft on the TV from inside the draft room, and I'd think to myself, holy moly, these people have some unreasonable hope. I mean, I'm really glad that we just drafted that player, but that single player ain't putting us in the Super Bowl. And uh, I think that the draft not only gives you hope but it gives you it gives you hope without having to play a game without having to justify it for a period of time uh everybody's allowed to dream uh but i can promise you this there's a lot of coaches that feel a great deal of pressure of son of a gun we better find a way to make sure this pick works out yeah i can remember those Days just the there's excitement, but there's also pressure, especially when you get a high pick and you're kind of backed into the corner, like you got to have a better season next year. I just remember, like you know, when we when you drafted a rookie quarterback in Chicago, and there were so many great quarterbacks that year, and there's just a lot of pressure for it to. To, for it to really translate into a franchise-changing thing. Yeah. Is it pressure comparable to game day pressure? Over a period of time, yeah. You know, a, a wise coach once told me the best way to meet expectations is to have low ones. Well, <laughs> on draft day, nobody has low expectations. This this Thursday, they're going to have the first round of the NFL draft on TV, and every player uh, is going to – the hope for every player is that they're a first ballot Hall of Famer. Well, I can promise you there's not going to be 32 first ballot mm-hmm. Hall of Famers from the first round of the draft, but players – uh, or uh, uh, fans and, and ownership doesn't necessarily want to hear that. And so there is a lot of pressure on coaches once you draft a guy because the scouts and the general manager that made the pick are all 
talking that player up, 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 raising expectations, expectations, trying to sell tickets, trying to sell tickets. And then all of a sudden they say, now, coach, you better make sure that guy meets mm-hmm. all those expectations. Right. No one's coming out saying like, well, we're not sure this guy, you know, he's, he's going to be an average exactly. player at least. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's really a, a pretty stressful time, mm-hmm. the period after the draft. And thinking of the immediate fan reactions you can get, too, you can have fans be really excited about a pick, and that guy just totally washes out. And I know one of the most, easily one of the most iconic draft moments is Eagles fans booing the pick of Donovan McNabb. Yeah. They ended up leading to a Super Bowl and several NFC Championship games and probably still the best quarterback in their franchise's history. You know, the draft, you can't win, you can't lose. You almost have to uh, tune out what is crowd noise. And just get focused on the players that you selected. What do we have to do to get them ready to play? And really, from a coach's perspective, part of the draft is managing expectations from within your own building. The general manager who just drafted this player may not have been my first choice, may not have been my second choice, heck, might not have been even up in my fourth or fifth choice, but that's the choice that we made, and so you better find a way to make it work. And that is pressure. it to be one of the most stressful parts of the year like when we were say, in the nfl as a coach's wife you yeah talked it about was game day was tough imagine what's what was I draft the like. draft was really well and also there are just a lot of politics in the draft room i mean who is making the call you know how the head coach and gm get along you know what scouts really the GM is listening to, is the owner in the room, is the owner involved? I mean, every team we were a part of, there were different dynamics. Um, some some draft days, I can remember, you know, they were pretty chaotic for you, and you'd come home and be like, I can't believe, like, this is what we did. <laughs> and then other times you would come home and really feel a sense of, like, you know, okay, this is exactly what we were hoping would happen. Um, But it was stressful. It was, and this was even before it was all on TV. I don't think it was all on TV as much when we were doing, you were doing an event the last five years over, over multiple days. Part of it would be. Well, well, it's certainly become an event, but even back in 1995, when we started and up through 2007, it was still, Uh, on TV. Every pick was carried, but it was over the weekend. So Saturday, uh, you would have the first three rounds on Saturday. And then on Sunday, you would have the final four rounds. And uh, it was all on TV, but it would shift over to like ESPN2 or ESPN3. Well, and there was no internet, really. Well, not at the beginning. There wasn't internet, but there was certainly... You pile on not just internet, but Twitter and everybody that's got uh, an opinion. Um, It does. I'll just say this. There's a lot of pressure in the week after the draft is when you'll have a rookie camp and you'll finally get these guys on the practice field. And sometimes you're like, oh, wow, we just found money in our pocket. And other times you're like, oh, boy. 
how we're going to make this one work. And I've been on, on, on both of those. Well, one thing we want to talk about in this episode is the language around the draft. And in particular, how coded the language is around the draft. Now, maybe it's not a huge surprise of loyal listeners of the show know that we take a lot of things from sports and then just project it into society and then see like, oh, well, that's not that big. That's not that surprising. There's a lot of coded racist language in the United States and across the world right now on any number of things. So it probably isn't all that surprising, at least for, again, us and listeners of the show to know that there is a lot of coded language within the NFL draft. But we're going to look at that. Uh, in this episode, and really want to start with, John, you were a quarterbacks coach every level, every place you were in the NFL, drafting quarterbacks, most important player on the team. There's a lot of coded language that comes around analyzing quarterbacks in the NFL draft, and you can almost hear those words and without even knowing the player, knowing if that mm-hmm. player was white or black. Yeah, you really can. And, and let me say this about the quarterback position. It's not only the most important player on the team. It's the most important position in the organization, period, the end. The quarterback is more important than the owner, than the head coach, than the offensive coordinator. The quarterback of your football team is the CEO of the company and is the face of the company. So giving a really deep analysis through when you would go to draft a quarterback, even a quarterback high in the draft, you'd have to spend a lot of time going through all their background, correct? And their abilities and all that sort of thing, correct? Oh, you'd try to figure out as much as you possibly can about uh, uh, every player, but specifically a guy who's a quarterback and going to be the face of your franchise. When I was in college and I'd send quarterbacks, you know, to the pros, I'd always tell them, you're being evaluated in ways you have no idea you're being evaluated. For instance, when you go to the combine, everybody that goes to the combine is above the floor talent-wise. I mean, they're they're pretty good. They're in the mix. Everybody, nobody's going to go there that can't really pass the ball. But things that I always used to look at were how people interacted with uh, teammates or other quarterbacks. If they had a little bit of natural leadership about them, if they were in the lobby and fans came up to them, did they act like a jerk or were they pretty poised? Were they on time for all their meetings or not on time? There's a lot of ways that players are being evaluated that they have no idea it doesn't have anything to do with how you pass the ball. It has to do with, is this guy going to be the face of our franchise? And I can remember uh, a, a guy named Russell Wilson, who's now the quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks. Everybody told me that the combine, at the senior bowl, wherever he went, this guy was like the Pied Piper. He even played here in town for the Asheville Tours. Most importantly, he spent his yeah. minor league baseball season right down the street. Mm-hmm. And, and he's the kind of guy that had a magnetic personality that people wanted to follow, a little bit of natural leadership. That was being evaluated so much. And here was a short quarterback whose stock really, really rose, rose, rose. Because you can't help but when you do work on these guys, invest feelings in them, good and bad. And so many people invested great feelings in them. Having said that, I've also been around quarterbacks that I'm like, man, no one's talking to that guy. Man, he doesn't have any friends. 
He's the last one here and the first one to leave. He's kind of every single thing a coach tells him to do. He's got questions about it. He could really pass the ball, but I'm not going to do a real good job coaching that guy. I've thought that a number of times as well. He's above the floor talent-wise, but his demeanor really doesn't fit what you're looking for for the CEO of a company. And that's one of the times that I think scouts, scouts are the people that really just try to evaluate the talent, nothing else. In coaches, uh, coaches are the people that also evaluate talent, but then have to spend 15 hours a day, 360 days a year with these people. The coaches start to evaluate other things. And I always had the best success in drafts whenever the general manager really took into account what the coaches had to say because even if you get a talented player, if it's not a good fit, coach and player, it, it just won't work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting this year that the the Wonderlick exam is, is in the mix. It's in the news that scores were leaked. Um, there has there are plenty of um, social scientists that say the Wonderlick is culturally biased. Um, that it's certainly biased against people for whom English is their first language. But it's also um, African Americans tend to score lower on that, and it doesn't correlate with intelligence. So there is there's kind of a you know a proven cultural bias there. Um, but some of what you're talking about when you talk about leadership and just ability to be present with other people and to be compelling to other people is emotional intelligence, really. We, you know, again, back when you were coaching, that wasn't really a word that had a lot of traction. But the Wonderlick test doesn't really test emotional intelligence. And even just in the last five to ten years, the whole concept of intelligence has really, you know, that's just such a bigger term now than just can you do math problems fast. But an emotional intelligence is a part of it. And I don't know that that there is a good way in the framework of the way people are evaluated in the draft to really understand their emotional intelligence. I don't even know if there's a lot of room in football for that to <laughs> flourish anyway. But, I mean, what you're talking about in terms of quarterback and those intangibles, those, you know, those leadership qualities, that really is emotional intelligence. I think there's also something you brought up, the wonder, like Tess, and we're going to talk about that here because those were leaked and it showed that Kyler Murray had scored very low on it. It seems to be a big deal when the wonder, like Tess, come out. When someone scores low on it. Mm-hmm. Don't seem to hear about it too much when someone scores high. Because I remember when Vince Young was coming out of the University of Texas, he scored very low on it too. And it became a big deal similar to what we're probably going to have the conversation here is how much does it matter? Um, first, I'll ask you as a quarterback's coach, how much did it matter what the Wonderlick test score was? I regret that it mattered a great deal to me. When I look back at it now, I hear everything you've said and Marcia said, and, and I understand the racial overtones of it. But it did matter to me. And one of the reasons that it mattered to me is because the way that I coached and taught was really 
in a classroom atmosphere with notes, a lot of reading. The language that I used in, in offense was really verbose, and it did correlate to the success that I had as a coach with a player. Having said that, that might reflect poorly on me that I wasn't able to adjust in some ways. Quarterbacks that I had the most success with did have higher-end Wonderlick test scores. And the Wonderlick is a test that players take while they're at the uh, combine in Indianapolis. And it's a, a, a test that is described to me as trying to evaluate your cognitive skills, your problem-solving skills, you're able to think quickly on your feet skills. I understand clear racism that's involved in that now, but back in 1995 to 2007, that wasn't as clear to me, and it was something that mattered a, a great deal. It's interesting to me that here just a few days before the uh, draft, those test scores are leaked. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me uh, that's not an accident. The Arizona Cardinals may be trying to back out of picking Kyler Murray with the first pick, or somebody else may be trying to uh, make Car Kyler Murray fall to so the seventh or eighth him. pick so they can get him. There's so much Cold War backdoor bull crap <laughs> that's going on going up to the draft that it's not an accident. Somebody intentionally leaked those for a reason, and it'll be interesting to see if it works in their favor or not. And there have been quarterbacks that had low wonderlike scores who played well in the NFL. Right? Yeah. Jim Kelly, uh, who is a Hall of Famer who played for the Buffalo Bills, is kind of regarded as the guy that uh, whenever I was coming up in the league, hey, don't get too caught up in the Wonder League score because Jim had a low one, you know. Um, and, and Jim is a white guy, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it is something that I, I did consider. It's not the only factor for sure. For sure. But it's something that I, I did consider. Well, it just all kind of all fits together with how how we kind of create expectations that are racialized, and then we back it up with quote unquote science. You know, you know, the, there's just the whole way that expectation is created around black quarterbacks that they'll be more athletic, that they'll be. And we're going to get to that here. Right. The language about right. this comes and in then that, yeah. and then they get a low Wonderlick score. And then it just feeds, you know, those assumptions that, well, this is just an athletic quarterback. He's, mm -hmm. he's not a good general on the field. He's just a good athlete. And, and you see how easily, you know, you see how confirmation bias works, that when you have mm -hmm. a certain bias and then something, you get some information, you're always going to take the information that confirms your bias first. Mm -hmm. It's harder to have that dissonance and be like, hold on a second.
Vince Young was a Heisman Trophy winner, won a national championship at Texas, had a long career in the NFL, but Mm -hmm. didn't reach that sort of level of success. And there might be those who might immediately say, well, we knew he wouldn't be great in the NFL because he had a little Wonderlic test score. Maybe, as you were saying, maybe that meant how coaches handled him. I don't know. That may have handled him differently. Didn't know how necessarily to coach him. Uh, You're right. When Vince was drafted, it it was interesting. Vince Young uh, was an African-American quarterback from Texas who was amazing. In the same year, there was a white quarterback from USC named Matt Leinart. And I can remember the Tennessee Titans uh, hired Matt Leinart's offensive coordinator, a guy named Norm Chow, to come in and be the offensive coordinator. And Norm Chow was more of a coordinator like me in that he had a verbose offense. He had long calls. The quarterback did a lot at the line of scrimmage. And so there were those that thought, well, gosh, they're going to pick Matt Leinart. They just hired his offensive coordinator. But then they ended up picking Vince Young instead of Leinart. And I thought to myself, there was a guy, uh, Coach Davis was his name. I think it's Tom Davis, was the offensive coordinator at Texas who did an unbelievable job with Vince Young, was just what Vince needed. And I think Vince's career was cut short for a, a lot of reasons, but one of them being it was a misfit. The offensive coordinator and the system of offense wasn't what he excelled in in college. And if they could have found that fit, I really would have been interested to see how good Vince Young did. Having said that, though, I think it's safe to say he did have the better pro career than Matt Leinart. I could say he also had the better college career, too. But uh. Yeah, uh, he did have, he did have uh, a better pro career than Matt Leinart, although both of, both of those players would be considered – kind of first-round busts. Neither had a a real effective pro career. But now getting into the language, Marsha, and again talking about quarterbacks and how they're evaluated, you're going to cite this article from a couple years ago from the Washington Post that looked at specifically how white quarterbacks are talked about and evaluated Mm -hmm. and how black quarterbacks are talked about and evaluated in the pre-draft sort of process. And the reason I think this matters is there is a reason the NFL draft is such a a television event Mm -hmm. and a fan event is – People talk about this for months. We wouldn't know who Mel Kuyper is unless this wasn't (laughs) an important television event. Mm -hmm. And this is something that will dominate sports coverage and has dominated sports coverage really since the Super Bowl ended. Uh, Has been this two to three months of this. And a lot of it is these evaluations that people can go over. The draft profiles, I guess. And I don't know who all creates those, if they're journalists or scouts or what. But they're Anybody on the, with a pen and paper. They're on the Anyone NFL. with a pen and paper and some time on their hands to go watch players. But I mean, there, there, is, there are official NFL draft profiles, apparently. I mean, this study that was cited in the 2017 article in the Washington Post um, about racialized language used to describe quarterbacks talks about these NFL draft profiles, and they they studied them from 2008 to 2016. There were 175 quarterback reports in those years, 43 um, minorities, and 132 white prospects. So 
And basically what they found was that white quarterbacks were much more likely to be described in terms of their intellect, and black quarterbacks were much likely more to be described in terms of their physicality, and that um, that white quarterbacks, that they use words like intelligence, um, understands the game, leader, command in the huddle, consistent, calm, um, you know, good, outstanding, and then with... With the black quarterbacks, they used more language about their hands, their weight, their frame, um, their body parts, um, and they tended to attribute, you know, kind of derogatory terms to their decision-making or their footwork, or um, they'd use words like um, unpredict- uh, or unpredictable or his footwork is a mess or things like that. And that these profiles actually, you know, have a determining effect about where someone goes in the in the draft. And that if you had language as a black quarterback around, you know, poor footwork or something like that, you were much more likely to go lower. Again, this gets back to this confirmation bias. If you have an implicit bias and you haven't surfaced it and really dismantled it and started to really like actively try to disrupt its power in your ability to make sense of the world, you're just going to get led around by the nose by it. So not only are these profiles racialized, but then the decision-making that comes out of how we use the profiles are also racialized. So you can just see how it just gets deeper and deeper and that, um, you know, black quarterbacks are, they in this article it talks about how they're more likely to get switched to a different um, position, get switched to a wide receiver or something else. Um, and white quarterbacks almost never get switched to a different position. I don't know. What does that Back up with your experience? Well, it does. And African-American quarterbacks will definitely be described more often as as athletic, as fast, as uh, look to run quickly. Dual threat seems to be the new dual sort of threat. term. It was athletic maybe sure. previously. Now yeah. it's dual threat. Yeah. Whereas white quarterbacks would be more cerebral, a tactician, kind of pick you apart. And I can remember the first instance, 1997, I was with the Carolina Panthers where this came up. We were going to take a quarterback late for the Carolina Panthers, and a guy that I started to really have feelings for was a guy named Damian Craig, who was a quarterback for the Auburn Tigers. Damian's an African-American and, in fact, is a coach today at Texas A&M. But I can remember sitting in the meeting room as we're going over all the draft picks, and I can remember saying, boy, this guy's a really good passer. He sits in the pocket. He's got great timing, anticipation, and touch. And no matter what I said, somebody always added on, and he's athletic, and he can really move around. And the interesting thing about Damian Craig was – 
he wasn't athletic. He, <laughs> he was actually really kind of slow and kind of slew-footed, yet we kept saying that again and again. And I, and I let it go. We ended up drafting him in like the seventh round. He didn't end up making our team. But he was really a cerebral guy who went on to become a coach. And that's the first instance that I thought of that. And then in last year's draft, there was a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback from Louisville named Lamar Jackson. And we're going through, uh, I'm looking through all the candidates in the draft, and I keep coming back to this Lamar Jackson who has every stat that there is to have. I mean passing stat. The guy is unbelievable. He absolutely put Louisville on his back. Uh, Bobby Petrino was his head football coach, who I know Bobby. I've got problems with Bobby, but I happen to think Bobby was one heck of a football coach who's very hard on his players. And so Bobby's coached in the NFL, so he's running a pro-style system. This guy's got numbers out the wazoo. And he wasn't being mentioned as one of the top 10 quarterbacks. In fact, there were people saying this guy needs to move to wide receiver. And I'm thinking to myself, wide receiver? He's never played wide receiver in his life. This guy <laughs> might be... It's not that simple to just switch to a different position, but right? Well, it's, not, it's not that simple. Yeah. Yeah. But, but this guy might have been one of the top five college quarterbacks of all time, statistically speaking. And I was so glad that when he was ultimately drafted in the first round by the Ravens, I think the 28th pick late in the first round, he ended up being one of the few quarterbacks last year that as a rookie ended up starting, I think, seven games for the Ravens and took him to the playoffs. And this is a guy that I just think if if given a chance uh, uh, can really be a great passer in this league. People don't realize a name like Warren Moon. Warren Moon was one of the all-time great passers in the NFL, Played for who was then the Houston Oilers, but then played for a number of teams as well. No team in the NFL would take a chance on Warren Moon out of the University of Washington, primarily because he was an African-American, and he had to go to the CFL and the Edmonton Eskimos and win like four straight Grey Cups and throw for 20,000 yards in four years up there just to prove that he's a real passer. And then he came back and just set records in the NFL. I know there's been instances where I, a white man from a privileged background, have had those thoughts of that guy's athletic. Uh, But I also know there's been instances where I've thought, you know, just the opposite and felt like I had to catch myself. And uh, Well, just the way that, I mean, even aside from the the statistically proven racialized language, just all the way that you talk about players— um, and then again, just kind of the meat market kind of <laughs> setup that it is. Um, I can remember just hearing you on the phone talking to scouts and stuff and kind of wincing a little bit about the way you talked about his, you didn't say the word, but, but you said <laughs> another word, 
But, um, you know, just their different body parts, their proportionality. Um, there was a lot of like, almost like it was, I mean, I'm a horse person. So when, when I, when you talk to people about horses, you talk about their, you know, their proportions and their different body parts and their, um, the size of their this and that. And it sounds a lot like that. Like, Mm -hmm. like you're talking about an animal or something. Um, well, it, it, it is a lot like that. And if you, if you go to the combine in Indianapolis, one of the really interesting things that happens is every player that's invited to the combine walks up onto a stage with in only their underwear, no shirt, no socks, no, and only their underwear. And it's underwear that's given. So you can really see their entire body. And pictures are taken of them facing you. Pictures are taken of them from the side. Pictures are taken of them from the back. They're asked to bend down in certain ways. And then they move from that place to the next one where we measure their hand size. And then the next spot where we measure their wingspan. And then the next spot where we measure how thick their wrists and ankles are. And then the next spot where we measure their necks. And as a scout and as a coach, that is helpful. It was very helpful to me to see somebody's for all intents and purposes, naked body to see, is this the type of person that can develop a suit of armor type of body that's necessary to play 16 games in the NFL? That's the thick neck, the thick wrist, the uh, really thick hamstrings and high glutes, glutes, you know, uh, (laughs) This, that's this, not the word he used. You know, either, this right? uh, <laughs> uh, 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 core that's just uh, uh, these abs. And, and you study these bodies. You study them. You, when you get back to the office weeks later, you're looking and flipping through these pictures again and comparing ankle sizes and wrist sizes and who's going to be more durable. And I'll never forget the chilling feeling that I felt one night uh-huh. Years later, when we were watching 12 Years a Slave, it was the exact same thing. That had a chilling effect on me because I do want to say it, it was useful to me as a coach to see their bodies. It was useful to me as a coach to put them through uh, these tests that I could determine, you know, whether they'd be able to make it or not through the season. But if you ever saw the movie 12 Years a Slave, it's the exact same thing that happened. And I got to tell you, it, it, it had a chilling effect on my soul.
You've been listening to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.